Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, great to see you. My name's Michael, and in a moment, we're going to be going to our time of teaching. But if you can hear me backstage, uh, I forgot my Bible in my office. So it's, uh, it's the big brown one, two-tone there on the desk. If you could bring that out, that would be awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a message note sheet. Uh, I want to welcome those of you out in the patio as well. And uh, so we're gonna, definitely going to be using that note sheet today. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Okay. Father, we're just excited to be here in your house, in your place, underneath your leadership. Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of your Holy Spirit that takes your word and opens our eyes to the truth it describes in a way that transforms us, a way that changes us, a way that directs us in the path of life. And today, as we come to this powerful passage in your word, Father, we just pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to each of us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Our story starts today in the winter. Uh, in fact, it's December. Uh, it's holiday season. And it's one of his favorite times of the year. And he and his family are traveling to the capital to celebrate the holidays. And as they, they approach the city, they can see the lights in the distance. And he, he just loves this time of year. He loves coming every year to this place to celebrate. And as he's looking at the city from a distance, thinking all the sights, the sounds, the songs that make up this season, his mind begins to drift back. And it's hard really to believe that this, this city that's going to be such a scene of celebration this week was once a place of such violent oppression, terror, even torture. And as he thinks back to those days, the stories he's heard, he shudders at the thought of what his people once went through and how they were terrorized by this foreign invader until finally it was the courage of one man and his family that rose up and said, enough is enough, and they inspired the whole nation to rise up and to kick out this violent oppressor. And of course, that's what they're all coming to celebrate this week. That's what they're remembering. That's what the songs and the lights and the candles are all about. Little does he know as he approaches the city that within three months, There'll be another violent act in this city that will once again change the direction, the course of his nation forever. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in the last six or seven months. It's called Signs, A Path to Life. And for those of you who are brand new, a uh, special welcome uh, this is a series about Jesus. It's actually an in-depth look at the life, the teaching of Jesus, um, as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers, uh, uh, closest friends, a man by the name of John. We call him the Apostle John, who at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, writes an account of his firsthand experience with Jesus. Uh, his life is teaching because of, based on his travels with him for two or three years. And if you were here last week, we, we watched as Jesus was, was in Jerusalem once again. It was the fall, probably the fall of A.D. 29. And uh, he made once again one of these huge claims that he continues to make that, that he's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he's the, the good shepherd that was promised that would come from the line of David. And if you were here, he made this claim that the reason he has come was to give his followers life, what he described as life to the full. And today we're going to watch as Jesus is now going to be, come back to Jerusalem. Um, 
we've moved forward in time a couple months. It's the end of the year, 29 uh, BC. It's, uh, it's the winter, it's December, maybe early January of 30 BC. Um, and once again, he's going to enter into some significant conflict with the religious leaders that's going to lead to his need to get out of Dodge. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to John chapter 10. There on your note sheet, you have a section that's called Signs, the Festival of Dedication. And uh, we'll pick it up at verse 22. And so, John says, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And so, let's, let's set the stage. Um, let's talk about, a little bit about this festival of dedication. This takes us back to the story that we started the day with, about this young man who's traveling with his family to the capital, looking forward to the sights and sounds of the city in this very special season. And so, so the reason he's excited is because he's traveling to Jerusalem, my fictional character, uh, to celebrate uh, this festival of dedication. So what is the festival of dedication? Well, if you were to go back in time about 200 years before this event that we're going to read today, before the time of Jesus, about 200 years, around the year, let's say 167, here's the situation in Israel. Israel is occupied by a foreign power. They're occupied by the nation of Syria, what we call the Seleucid dynasty. And a new Seleucid king has come to the throne. His name is King Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he is, uh, he's a passionate fan of Greek culture. Uh, with all the gods, with all their customs, with all the races and, and all the worship of their temples. And so he decides that he is going to what we call Hellenize the nation of Israel, which means to, to make them Greek. And so he outlaws all worship of Yahweh. You can no longer worship. So we're, we're the time between the Testaments, right? We're in, in between the Old and New Testament. Uh, so he outlaws the worship Yahweh. You can no longer worship Yahweh. You, he makes it illegal to have a copy of scriptures or to be reading scriptures. He makes it illegal to circumcise your sons, which is a sign that they're part of the covenant, part of the nation of Israel. He makes it illegal to, uh, to worship on the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath. And as you can imagine, this leads to huge conflict because because Israel is fiercely monotheistic. They worship Yahweh. And so he has to begin to clamp down. His troops begin to come in. They begin to arrest and even torture people who are violating his new laws. And it would often get gruesome and extreme. We have stories of this in the, in the apocryphal uh, literature that we know uh, as the book of Maccabees. We, we, we have stories in there that these Jews that were arrested for continuing to worship Yahweh, they would be, he would often torture them by cutting off their limbs. And then while they were still there bleeding, begin to skin them alive. He'd put their feet over fire in order to get them to renounce. And as a result, you can imagine that the nation was, it was a time of terror and oppression, and many would run to the hills. They'd flee to the countryside, living like animals in caves to escape this. And in the midst of this, at, at a certain point, there was one man in his family. His name is Judas Maccabeus. We call him Judas the Hammer is what he was known as. He and his sons raise up a, a kind of a, a revolution. And though they're greatly outnumbered, um, they, they begin to introduce like a guerrilla war, warfare, like freedom fighters against his much superior uh, Syrian forces. It's sort of like a David versus Goliath, but sure enough, uh, they end up driving out the nation of Syria and regaining about a hundred years of actual freedom. The only time uh, from, from, from when, you know, the kings of Israel used to reign till, 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 till the time, of, the only time they had any time of freedom. And one of the things they did is during this Seleucid dynasty, during this time of persecution, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, his king, had ordered that a pig be slaughtered on the uh, altar of sacrifice at the temple to desecrate the temple. And then after that, he ordered sacrifices to be made to the Greek gods like Zeus and so on. 
And so one of the first things to do when, after the Maccabean revolt, when it, when it was successful, one of the first things they did is they said, we have to cleanse the temple. We have to rededicate the temple. And so they began to cleanse the temple, and they had an eight-day celebration. The lighting of the menorah uh, was once again done to, to rededicate the temple. And so this is what then every year after that, the Jews would celebrate uh, the festival of dedication. And of course, we know it as what? What do we call it today? Yeah, the Feast of Hanukkah. And of course, other traditions were built over time. That's what it was all about. So at the time of Jesus, this Feast of Dedication would take place usually late December, early January. And so, um, and so that's the scene. Jesus has returned to the city as he's often coming back to these festival times when the city is packed with pilgrims. He's returned to the city uh, to, uh, during this kind of probably late December time period. And we're told today that he's going to be uh, strolling through an area of the temple in Jerusalem that's called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch. Now, if you remember, the temple is huge. Remember the, the dimensions you've got. It's sort of like three football fields on one side, five on the other. This huge walled fortress, uh, a more like, a for, like an ancient fort, but inside 100,000 people could come during festival time or, or more. But inside the walls, there was one side on the eastern side of the temple complex, there was what we call a columnade. Now, a columnade is like where you have those Greco-Roman pillars that you can always picture and huge like Greco, but, it, but a picture like two rows of them parallel, and then on top of them is a stone roof. And so this was a sort of a, an open air area, but you could go underneath this huge uh, stone roof area, and you could, you could teach in there. You could have meetings in there. It would kind of, this roof would protect you from the sun, from the rain, but it was an open air out into the huge courtyards inside the worship center. So, so as our scene opens today, that's the scenario. It's, uh, it's late December, early January. It's the time, the festival of dedication. Jesus has returned. Uh, and once again, he's going to enter into conflict as he's walking one day through this huge Solomon's colonnade. By the way, this colonnade, this area, within less than a year, uh, the movement of Jesus is going to be meeting in here in the book of Acts. This is where the early church is going to meet. It's going to be their first church. All right. So in verse uh, 22, so, so John says, so then came the festival of dedication. So now we get what that is. And it was at Jerusalem, and it was winter, right? We know it's like December, January. And so Jesus was in the temple courts inside the Yukon Plus, but he was walking in Solomon's colonnade. And so the Jews who were gathered around him, they said, hey, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, in many ways, he already had told them, but he was a little coy about this. The way he would frame it, uh, it was kind of protecting him from attack. But in his mind, he has been clean. If they, uh, he has been clear. If they were really his sheep, they would have heard his voice. They would have understood. And so he says, uh, he answers in verse 25, look, I did tell you, but you did not believe. And he says, the works, and he's talking about these supernatural signs we've seen in John's gospel. Like, remember back in, in John 5 in Jerusalem, he healed this man for, who had been lame for 38 years at the Pool of Bethesda. You remember in John 9, where he'd opened the eyes of the man who was blind since birth? He says, those very works that I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. But the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. So this takes us back last week where he used this image, I'm the good shepherd. I've come to give them life, life to the full. And he says, my sheep recognize me. The reason you don't recognize my claims is you, you're not my sheep. In verse 28, he says, so I give them, my sheep, I give them eternal life. So remember, this is what he said last week. I have come to give them life, life to the full. Uh, he often calls this eternal life, which is not just length of life, but quality of life, this new life that we were designed to live. And so he says, I give my sheep this eternal life, and they will never perish. Why? Because it's eternal, right? Once we come to Jesus, we will never die. That, that this, we will just continue to go with him. When it comes time for a physical death, we just cross over that. We continue on with him. We will never die. 
And so he says, they'll never perish. No one will snatch him out of my hand, right? He's the good shepherd. He's going to protect his sheep. No one's going to get him away. My father who has given them to me, he's greater than all. And no one can snatch him out of my father's hand. And then he lowers the boom. I and my father are one. Now, we've seen this throughout the Gospel of John, haven't we? Jesus has made these claims one way or another to be equal with God. Back in John chapter 5, remember he called God his father. He refers to himself as his son. And they say, you're making yourself equal to God. They wanted to arrest him there. Remember John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. They wanted to stone him there. Here again, making a very similar claim. I and the Father are one. And I want you to catch this. They're going to understand exactly what he's claiming. And that's why they're going to pick up stones. What we're about to see is like an impromptu, almost like you think of like a lynching type of thing. where just kind of mob violence. I want you to picture the Middle East today and how passionate in that part of the world people can be about their religious convictions, how crazy it can get sometimes. And so you kind of picture that sort of scene here. The tension is really rising. And so again in verse 31, it says, again his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. This was not the first time in the Gospel of John we've seen this. And of course the reason they're going to stone him is because they believe by using terms like God's my father, uh, that I'm the son, I'm my father one, that he's committing blasphemy. In the Old Testament, when a false prophet came and taught wrong things, the, the penalty was death and often death by stoning. So his Jewish opponents, they pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus said, this is funny, he's just kind of get, you know, just kind of being ironical here, but Jesus says to him, hey, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you stoning me? Like, hey, remember, you know, is it because I healed that blind guy? Is that what it is? Is it because, all I know is because um, I healed that man who'd been lame for 38 years. That's probably why you want to kill me. Is that it? And so they're like, no. <laughs> so, uh, so they said, hey, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, what? You claim to be God. So I want you to catch this. They are very clear on what Jesus is claiming. Now, a quick little sidebar here. Sometimes people will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. But what I want you to catch is he is claiming it over and over, but just in a very Jewish way. And they understand exactly what he's saying. There's no question. And here's what I want you to catch. Whenever Jesus makes a claim, and they say something like, we're going to kill you because you're claiming you've got, notice what he does. He never says, oh, did you think I was claiming to be God? Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I would never claim to be God. And I want you to think about this. In the Bible, anytime anyone treats anyone like God, they're immediately told to knock it off. So think like when an angel will show up in the Bible and, and you know, we're scared to death and the man falls down, begins to worship. Oh, no, no, no. I am an angel. Please knock it off. Only one gets treated like God, right? Uh, I think when, uh, when Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and when, when he comes to his house, Cornelius, this Roman centurion, begins to honor him. He goes, no, 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 don't. no, I'm just a man. Right? If Jesus were not claiming to be God, the last thing he would have done is let this go unchecked. He's, he understands what he's claiming. They understand what he's claiming. And because he's claiming to be the son of the father, one with God, God's my father, because of that, they say, hey, that is an act of blasphemy. We're going to take you out. We're going to stone you right here, right now. And so Jesus says, well, wait a second. Can we do just a little Bible study together? So he's going to challenge their assumptions. They're saying you should not be using language like father and son, but you can't talk like that. That is blasphemy. And, and he says, well, wait just a second. Uh, can we, study, can we, we talk about the Bible a little bit? And what he's going to do is Jesus is going to quote a passage from Psalm 82. Now, Psalm 82 is a very, it's a fascinating psalm. 
Because in Psalm 82, Yahweh is speaking. And he's speaking to an unidentified audience. And he calls them gods. He calls them sons of God. Now, even to this day, scholars debate over to whom is Yahweh speaking in this psalm. For example, some scholars believe that he is talking to human judges, for example, who carry out a godlike function of judgment on earth. And so he's referring to these human judges as gods. Uh, other scholars, I tend to lean this way, that he's talking to kind of this heavenly court. He's talking to angelic beings who were charged with oversight of different parts of the earth. But whatever it is, the point that Jesus is making is that God himself, Yahweh, is referring to beings other than himself as gods or sons of God. So if Yahweh is using that language, it's not always inappropriate to use that language. And in my case, I have every right to use that language because of the works that I'm doing that testify to who I truly am. And so there in your note sheet, there's a quote from Psalm 82 that Jesus is going to quote. And this is what, this is what he's going to be referring to in the section we're about to read. So I said, so this is Yahweh talking. I said, you are God's. You're all sons of the Most High. So he's talking to some other entities, and, he's, and Jesus' argument is going to be, if God could call others gods or something, then how much more can I call myself that, uh, being who I am? And so, in verse uh, uh, 33, let's pick up where we left off. We're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And so Jesus answered them. So he's going to challenge their assumptions. And he says, is it not written in your law? Right? So he's going to quote Psalms here. The law was one way that Jews would refer to the entire Old Testament, the word of God. And he says, uh, is it not written in your law that I have said you are God's? And if... He, if Yahweh called them gods, to, to whom the, the what? The word of God, underline that. If, if he's quoting Psalm 82, he says, if Yahweh said that I called them gods to whom the word of God came, and then catch, he's gonna, he's gonna do a quick little sidebar, a parenthetical comment that's incredibly important, we're gonna come back to later, and I want you to underline it now. He says, and scripture cannot be set aside. I want you to understand that. Scripture cannot be set aside. In the Greek, it can't be undone. It can't be released. In other words, it can't be broken. He said, well, if that's true, then what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? You know, if God can use this language to talk in something, like why can't I use this language to talk about myself being who I am? He said, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I'm God's son. I mean, Yahweh used this language. He says, so do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. He says, don't trust me unless I'm backing it up with these supernatural signs. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father. We are one that this claim is true. And so, they're not buying this, so again, they try to seize him, but Jesus does his Houdini thing again, and he escapes their grasp. I'd love to just see how this happened. A little Jesus magic here, you know, fake of the head and into the crowd he goes. Okay, so, so, so we're coming to the, towards the end of his time in Jerusalem. Things are really heating up. It's becoming very dangerous. And so as a result, Jesus is going to withdraw from Jerusalem. It's time for him to get out of Dodge. And so he is going to leave Jerusalem, and he's going to go to the far side of the Jordan. So remember, Jerusalem's at 2,500 feet elevation. It's December. It gets cold there, right? Like it's snow. I've been there when it snows in December, and so he's at 2,500 feet. He's going to take the 18-mile road down to Jericho, 
uh, which is in the desert, kind of below sea level, down by the Dead Sea. He's going to cross over the Jordan River there, and he's going to go back to the place where John the Baptist used to teach, kind of back where he started. And we don't know. Scholars disagree over where John actually baptized, but at a minimum, this would probably be 20, 25 miles from Jerusalem. So that'll harm's way. And so John says, so Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and, then he, and, th- and there he stayed, and many people came to him. So he was, he's out in kind of a non-public place, but the crowds kept on coming. They wanted to hear him, perhaps be healed. And then they said, though John the Baptist, though John the Baptist never performed a sign, he never did a miracle, all that John said about this man was true, right? So John, we remember back in chapter one of John, John's job was to give witness to Jesus so that people would believe in him. And now even though John has long since been arrested and executed by, by uh, Herod Antipas, uh, his witness is still ringing true. And they can, they can say without question that, hey, what John said about Jesus has turned out to be true. And based on John's witness and Jesus' life and performance, it says many, John says that in that place, many believed in Jesus, right? So it's, it's another remarkable passage. Um, there's so much we could delve into. We could talk more about Jesus' claims of divinity. We could talk about what he says about his sheep, and he gives them life, and no one can snatch him out of his hand. But what I want to focus on today is this little parenthetical comment, this quick sidebar that Jesus makes right in the midst of his argument when the pressure's on, the heat is on, uh, that the Scripture cannot be set aside. The Scripture cannot be broken. And so today, uh, there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Jesus and Scripture. And what I want to do today is I want to highlight one key principle that's so important to understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and the path to life for us. This one big picture principle, we'll spend quite a bit of time on it, and then come back at the end and ask two questions, two key questions for our life. So there in your note sheet, uh, here's, the, here's the principle. Let's start it out. So here's what we're going to see today in this, in this uh, passage we study, that Jesus affirms, Jesus affirms, or if you like the word um, that he asserts, or if you like the word he assumes, all three words work. He affirms, he asserts, he assumes. And this is what he's affirming. He affirms the authority of Scripture. What we're going to see today is that for Jesus what we call are the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, Hebrew, that for Jesus, the Old Testament in his mind was the very word of God. Uh, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore was absolutely trustworthy and true. It carried the highest level of authority in his life, both personally and in his teaching, right? And what we're gonna see today is if we want to follow Jesus, we have to come to a place where we see scripture like he sees scripture because otherwise we will miss the life to the full that he's come to give us. So um, what, we, what we see today is that uh, in the midst of this very, as Dre would say, spicy situation, right? So in the midst of this very, like, his life is on the line, so to speak. Uh, The crowd is hugely angry at him. They are picking up stones. We're about to see mob violence. And by the way, this was not legal. Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment. They had to go before Rome. It's why Jesus had to go before Pilate. The Jews couldn't just execute him. But from time to time, mob violence would break out, as in the New Testament, just a couple years after this, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned, right, without due process. And so, so Jesus, in the midst of this very spicy situation, he stops and says, hey, can we do a little Bible study here? And he appeals to Scripture uh, And in the midst of this, he makes a comment about Scripture that's critical for us today. And so what I want to highlight is not so much the argument he makes from from Psalm 82 about calling himself the son and the father, how he's right to do that. I don't want to focus on the argument. We talked about that. What I want to focus on is the sidebar comment he makes in the midst of the argument. And so I put it there on your note sheet. 
And it's one of the most profound things that Jesus ever says about Scripture. He says, so Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, you know, in Psalms, uh, that I have said your gods, he's quoting Psalm 82, and he said, if he called them gods to whom the what? The word of God comes. So notice that, that language, that word of God comes. And, and here comes the parenthetical comment, and scripture cannot be set aside. If, if Yahweh made this comment, and if it's true, as we all know, that scripture can't be set aside, then. What I want you to catch is that one of Jesus' core assumptions that he shares with the religious leaders, they may disagree on tons of things. They may disagree on how to interpret the word of who Jesus is, but one thing they agreed with him on is that the scripture was the word of God and it cannot be set aside. And Jesus builds his whole argument on this common assumption. And here's what you see, throughout Jesus' life, throughout his teaching, throughout his personal life, you see this, that Jesus assumes the ultimate authority of scripture. He affirms it in his teaching. He asserts it over and over. And we don't have time today to go through every example. I mean, it would take hours and hours to do this. As you read through the gospels on your own, you'll have new glasses now to pay attention to this when it happens. But what I want to do is highlight three examples from the life and teaching of Jesus that help us to give a, a window into how he saw Scripture and the role it played in his life. And so there in your note sheet, you have three bullets. I've just picked three. I actually had four before. I knew I'd be running out of time, so I, I, I'd taken that out. I'll throw it in quickly at the end uh, just to give it to you. But I just do that. I take things out to make it seem like I won't be running over, and then I just say them anyway. Uh, it's kind of my spiritual denial. Anyway, uh, so the first event is, let's look at the temptation, the temptation of Jesus. Now, for those who've been Christians for a while, you know this, that this is how Jesus launched his ministry. The very first thing he did when he started his ministry is he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And you remember that when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove to anoint him for his, his ministry. And the very first thing, that the Spirit led Jesus to do was to go into the wilderness for 40 days like Israel had been in the wilderness for 40, 40 years and to, uh, to prepare for his ministry. But we're also told in the Gospel of Mark that the entire 40 days was a time of spiritual warfare. That if Jesus was going to win the spiritual battle, if Jesus was going to break the hold of Satan on the human race, he had to enter into warfare and he had to win that battle. So this is a critical moment in Jesus' life. If he fails this time of temptation, his whole mission is derailed and we would not be here today. So it's a critical season. And so he's fasting for 40 days and at the end of that comes the grand finale, I call it. Like when Satan came one last time at his point of weakness, let's hit him hard three times and see if we can break him, right? And so if you're familiar with that account, like for example, in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, stay on your note sheet, you look at it later, what you'll notice, and we're not going to go through those temptations in detail, but what I want you to notice when you look at them again is that with every temptation, and each one was different, with every temptation, Jesus didn't argue, he didn't debate, he simply quoted a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. So what I want you to get, in his moment of greatest weakness, after fasting for 40 days, in a time of intense spiritual warfare, at the moment of critical attack, a turning point in his life and ministry, when the enemy comes, he doesn't debate, he doesn't argue. What does he do? He just looks to the word. Here's the opportunity, here's the proposal that Satan is making. What would the word say about that? And what we see for Jesus, the word is the ultimate authority that guides the steps in his life. Here's one, something else I want you to notice. That I want you to notice as you read through the gospels how well Jesus knows the Bible. He not only teaches from it, 
he often quotes obscure passages when he's in conflict with the religious leaders that just happens on the spur of the moment. It's like he's not prepared for this. It's just like today, like when he quotes from Psalm 82, right? It's like this happens all the time. You watch his, he's just, and the question is, how did Jesus know the Bible so well? And I think, honestly, often we think he was just born that way. Like, like when he was born, he just kind of the, the Holy Spirit just downloaded the Bible in his brain. And so whenever he's in a jam, he just kind of like look up his eyelids. And like, well, according to Psalm 82. But everything we know about Jesus is not only he was 100% divine, God, he's 100% man. And we ha- he has to grow and develop in his knowledge and his wisdom just like you and I do. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, Luke gives us a fascinating window into the life of Jesus. When he's 12 years old, he travels with his family for the Passover to Jerusalem. He said they did it every year. And and when they they leave, his family is probably traveling in a large tour for safety. His family takes off. They think their son's with them. But when they're a day out, they realize he isn't. So it's a day back now. And then they're looking for him. It takes him a day. And after three days, they find him in the temple. And here's what's interesting. He's talking with the religious leaders. But he's not teaching, he's asking questions. He's listening, he's learning. And then Luke says this about, there on your note sheet, Luke says that, makes a comment that when he went home with his family when he was 12, that Jesus, what happened? He grew in wisdom. Notice he didn't know it all. He was developing and growing. And so we don't know exactly how he did this, but Jesus obviously invested a lot of time and energy Studying the word, he loved the word, and that's why it was so foundational. He could teach, he could respond in conflict, he knew the word, he memorized the word, uh, at least the passages that he's quoting. All right, so we see it here how important the word is, his ultimate authority in this time of spiritual warfare. Look at the next example, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you continue reading in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 4, he does his, the, goes through the wilderness. Then he launches his ministry in the north of the country, and he's, he's sharing his message uh, that the kingdom of God has come. And so in chapter 5, he begins this most famous speech in the history of the world that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole point was to help people understand what is he talking about, this kingdom of God, what does it mean to be part of the kingdom? And it would appear that there were those who are questioning whether Jesus really saw the Old Testament uh, uh, authoritative because his teaching seems so different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was raising questions. Well, is he like launching a whole new thing? Uh, How does he feel about the law of Moses? How does he feel about the prophets? And so Jesus seems to be addressing that in this uh, chapter five. And he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The Old Testament, don't think that. Apparently there were some who were raising that as a theory. And he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. So Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it in the sense that the last chapters of a great novel fulfill the early chapters. It's like it's the end of the story, like everything's been leading up to this. And he says, for truly, I tell you, not until heaven and earth disappear, like the end of time, not the smallest letter or the stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. No, no, I'm absolutely standing in the line of Scripture, the law of Moses. So I'm not coming to change that. I've come to bring it to its appointed end. Nothing's going to change. No, when it's the Word of God. You know, it can't be broken. The last example is what I'm calling his post-resurrection Bible study. So, uh, the last day that Jesus is, uh, or the first day of the resurrection on Sunday morning, that night he shows up for the very first time uh, and to, to show himself to his disciples behind locked doors. And of course, they're scared to death. They think he's a ghost. After he convinces them, no, I'm not a ghost, you can touch me. Let's have some fish here, let's have some dinner. After they settle down, he says, okay, now we, one of the things he did that night is we need to do a Bible study together. And so look what happens. He said, this is what I told you when I was still with you, you know, before his arrest, he said everything, and then what's the ne- next word? Must. I want you to know, like, everything 
must, underline both those words, everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms. He says, everything that was talking about my coming, it had to be fulfilled. And he said, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. So three things I want you to catch from that passage. First of all, notice how everything's leading up to him, right? That he said, everything written about me uh, must be fulfilled. Secondly, notice that word must. If it says it in the word, it has to be fulfilled, right? Again, scripture cannot be undone. And number three, Notice how Jesus had to open their minds so they could see the truth to which the scripture was speaking. And that still goes on today when you and I study the word. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to open our mind to help us understand the truth, the reality of what we're reading, okay? And so uh, here's, let me give you the fourth passage that we're not gonna look at, all right? <laughs> we're not gonna go there. We don't have time. I'm already over, but... Um, I want to give you the passage. You can look at it yourself. It's in Mark chapter 12, verse 35 to 37. And in that passage, Jesus is quoting another psalm, Psalm 110. It was a psalm written by David. He's, he's quoting it to help him understand who the Messiah will be. But this is what he says when you check it out. He, when he talks about David writing that psalm, here's what he says. David writing by the Holy Spirit. All right? And so, so this is what we see in the life of Jesus is that for Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures were the word of God. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore they're completely accurate and true. They can never be broken. Their ultimate authority, both in his personal life um, and understanding his calling and, and leading us to the path of life. So, so this leads us to a couple questions in. We see how Jesus looks at scripture. The question, we, we have a couple questions for ourselves. And so what we're gonna do is, I'm gonna give you the first one. We're gonna spend some, some significant time on it. And then the second one's gonna go very quickly, not because I don't have a lot of to say, but because I don't have a lot of time. So number one, here we go. Uh, here's the first question. We've seen the authority that the scripture carries for Jesus. Here's the question. How much authority does the word have in your life? As this is a question just for you, but how much authority does the word have in your life? We've seen for Jesus, it's the word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely true. It can never be broken. Uh, it's the ultimate authority for, for him and his life and, how the, the, and the path to life. And the question I have here is, how much authority does the word have in your life? Now, this is not an, always an easy question to answer because if you're a follower of Jesus here, if you've been part of Rocky Peak any length of time, chances are your natural instinct would say, well, I agree with Jesus, that the word of God has Ultimate authority, I believe, is always true, but all it can be trusted, always reliable. It leads us in the path to life. But the reality is that often we don't find out how much authority the Bible actually has in our life until one of three things happens. Until the Bible challenges our opinions our beliefs, our traditions, or until, number two, the Bible asks us or tells us to do something we don't want to do, or to stop doing something we really want to do, or number three, until the Bible collides with the politically correct views of culture. And it's at these moments of life that we find out how much authority the Bible really has. You see, in all of our life, there are different sources of authority, aren't there? Um, th there can be, uh, uh, sometimes uh, our parents are a source of authority. The way we were raised is a source of authority. The culture we were raised at. You know, well, well we're Asian. Uh, we're, we're Italian, you know, we're, we're Irish. Well, we're Hispanic in the Hispanic culture. 
we're black, we're white. Often our, the culture we were raised in and the traditions and the values that, that carries tremendous authority in our lives. Uh, sometimes it's the voice of the church that we were raised in. The, the religious tradition that we've grown up with has a lot of authority in our lives. Sometimes it's from education or science or, or uh, professional fields or what our profs taught us in, in, in college or what we learned in high school or what we learned in grad school. Uh, sometimes it's the voice of human culture. It's the voice of, uh, hey, what's popular, social media, what's politically correct, it carries authority with us. And so often, even as followers of Jesus, on the one hand, we could say, hey, I, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I, I trust it. Is it your ultimate authority? Yes, it is. And yet, we don't really know if we believe it until the teaching of Jesus and his word comes into conflict with our personal beliefs, our personal convictions, our traditions, our background, the voice of key other authorities in our life, the voice of culture, and so on. And at those moments, we find out what we really believe about the Bible. So for example, Sometimes we can say things like, I know what Jesus said about he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, but, I, but I'm, it's really hard for me to believe these really good people who don't know Jesus. Um, sometimes we can say, I know what the Bible says about forgiveness, but if you understood what this person had done, I don't think God would ever really expect that of me. We can say, well, I know what Jesus said about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Hey, but this is politics. Uh, we, say, we can say things like, hey, I know what the Bible says about finances, but we're just young and starting out. I know what the Bible says about marriage and divorce, but you don't understand how unhappy I am. I know what the Bible says about sexual ethics and same-sex relationships. I know what it says about gender issues, but, but I have this brother, or I have this sister, or I have this uncle, or I have this child. I know what the Bible says about racism, but you don't understand where I was raised, what I've experienced. And so what happens is that often we could even fool ourselves that we look at the Bible as Jesus looked at the Bible, and yet the reality is when push comes to shove, that the reality is we agree with the Bible when it agrees with us. And what I want you to catch is that Jesus has come to give us life, and that life is found in the path of his word. Not only in the Old Testament, which, which the Jews had, but now even more so that Jesus has come and we have his teaching and the teaching of his apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So the question is, for each of us, is, is how much authority does the word hold in our life? And there's a second question. This one we won't spend as much time with, but I think you can work it out, work out the details on your own. But the question goes like this, how are you working the word into your life? We've seen today that for Jesus, not only does the word carry ultimate authority, but he was very intentional about working the word into his life. Now, we don't know how he did that. We, we don't know exactly the rhythms of his life or, or how he learned and memorized the word, but it's clear from his teaching that he's very familiar with the word, he's very comfortable with the word, he knows the word, he can pull it out when he needs to, it guides his path. And so for Jesus, that he was very intentional about working the word into his life, because for him the word was the path to life. It was a source of truth, and he just loved the word. And so the question is, for each of us, how are you working the word into your life? You know, are, are, you, making, are you making church a priority? We unpack the word here, that you're 
preparing for that. You're here each week. You're you're studying the word. You're learning the word. You're going home sometimes and maybe going back to that word. You're, you're going to your life group and you're really delving into that word and other passages we have you read. Maybe you're um, in your one-on-one time. You, you're making your one-on-one time with Jesus a priority so you can learn his word and listen for his voice. Maybe there's other ways. You're listening to certain podcasts or you're listening to uh, kind of audio Bible or you may be taking courses uh, online or like at Eternity Bible College here locally. Um, like, like how are you working the word into your life? And here's what I want us to understand. If we don't know the word, the word cannot be our ultimate authority. If we don't know it, like how can we follow it how can we believe it if we don't even know what it says, right? And so here's a, if you want to be transformed to become like Jesus, maybe it makes sense that we would do what Jesus did in terms of making the word a priority in our life. You know, it's very interesting. At the end of his life, on uh, John 17, right before he's arrested, there's this beautiful prayer of Jesus, and he's praying for his men who he's going to be turning the movement over to very shortly, and when he, he asks the Father to sanctify them, which is a word that has to do with, like, set them apart from this fallen, broken, destructive world. Set them apart, purify them, transform them by this new life I've come to give them so that they, in turn, can take the message out. Sanctify them, all right? But look what he says. He says, sanctify them. John 17, sanctify them. You know, set them apart, purify, transform them. Sanctify them by the What? By the truth. Remember what Jesus said? You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Same thing. And then he says this. He says, your word is truth. If we're going to be transformed, if we're going to experience the life that Jesus has come to give us, that we need to embrace his perspective on the word as the ultimate authority of our life, the loudest voice in our head, we need to learn to hang on every word that he says so that we can be transformed, move into the life that he's come to give us, life to the full. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we live in the midst of a culture that's really pressing in on us right now. It's becoming very anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, anti-Christ, increasingly with each passing day. And, Lord, as we... As we experience that, Lord, we we feel this pressure to abandon the truth, to capitulate to culture, to compromise what we say we believe we do because of the pressure, because of the cost. And Lord, we pray that we would be like lights shining in a dark space, that, that we would embrace the truth of your word, that there we would find life, life to the full, that we would be charting a different path, lighting a course that we would truly be the light of the world. We pray, God, that you would teach us, as this song says, to, to hang on every word that you say. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.